Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, it's going to be a wild and crazy day today here in Portland, 99 degrees, 103 tomorrow. It's getting nuts. This is uh, climate change. There's a lot going on in the news that we will get to as we go through the day. Steve Hassan is going to drop by. He's got this, well, the title to his piece is rather instructive. It's titled, Good Way to Die, an AR-15 Worshipping Mooney's Sect mobilized for January 6th, is now recruiting the far right to its apocalyptic vision. Spencer Ackerman will be here with, of course, how 9-11, and specifically George W. Bush's response to 9-11, is what set up the Trump presidency. And he's got a new book out about this called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America Produced Trump, and I think it's absolutely spot on. And Dr. Justin Frank will be with us about deprogramming Trump cultists and what, you know, just what's going on with all of that. But first, I want to talk about why conservatives want government to fail, right? This is what we are seeing just writ large. I mean, just huge all over the place. The writing, the newsletter that documents the right-wing websites from the New York Post. Don't buy the latest climate change and alarmism. Well, you know, it's... It is taking down governments, right? Climate change took down the government of Tunisia, took down the, almost took down the government of Syria, took down the government of Libya, changed the government in Egypt. It's you know wrecking the governments in Central America. The Wall Street Journal, a climate of catastrophe. They're all pushing back on the IPCC report. And then of course the vaccine. Oh, let's make sure that you know America still has a dysfunctional you know that 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 our hospitals are just jammed with people that they can't even deal with. And so here over at World Net Daily, welcome to 1938. First, they came for the unvaccinated. Right. Or it's all Joe Biden's fault. The American thinker, America is suffering from Biden's COVID recklessness at the border. But there's an actual reason why conservatives want government to fail everywhere. It's what I'm, I'm writing about in my piece today of the same title over at HartmanReport.com. There was this new study that just came out from the Peace Research Institute in Norway and the University of Aarhus. They polled 6,000 adults in the United States, Denmark, Italy, and Hungary, and they found that right across the board in these democratic nations, now Hungary is kind of the outlier here, but nonetheless, what they found was that the COVID pandemic has further eroded people's faith in democracy. Back in the 1960s, Pew has been doing these studies, the Pew Research Center. They have been doing these studies since 1953. And what they found was back in the 60s, 80 plus percent of Americans said that they trusted government to do the right thing most of the time. The percentage today is 17%. How did that happen? How is it that we went from trusting our government to not trusting our government in, in you know, 50 years? Well, it turns out there's an actual story here. Back in 1961, Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring about the, the death of birds as a result of the use of insecticides. And Ralph Nader in 1965 published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, talking about how you know, the big 
automakers knew that their cars were designed in ways that would kill people. The steering wheels would go right through your chest. This could be fixed. The seatbelts were not mandatory. Seatbelts would save lives, all this kind of stuff. And they were fighting against seatbelts. In response to this, Lewis Powell in 1971 wrote this infamous memo saying that business and very wealthy individuals needed to mobilize to stop this so-called assault on American business. In his memo, Lewis Powell said, and I quote, perhaps the single most effective antagonist of American business is Ralph Nader, who thanks largely to the media has become a legend in his own time and an idol of millions of Americans. And then he goes on to quote this article from Forbes magazine about Ralph Nader, quote, the passion that rules in him, and he is a passionate man, is aimed at smashing utterly the target of his hatred, which is corporate power. He thinks and says quite bluntly that a great many corporate executives belong in prison for defrauding the consumer with shoddy merchandise, poisoning the food supply with chemical additives, and willfully manufacturing unsafe products that maim or kill the buyer. He emphasizes and this is where Forbes got really freaked out. He emphasizes that he is not just talking about fly-by-night hucksters, but the top management of blue-chip businesses. Lewis Powell then in the next paragraph says, this is a frontal assault on our government, our system of justice, and the free enterprise system. And his solution? Big corporations and morbidly rich people need to fund a series of public policy think tanks they need to create a filtering organization to help stack the courts with conservatives. They need to create right-wing media empires, particularly in news, in television, in radio, and uh, in, in print. And they need to place business-friendly professors in colleges and universities all across the country. Lewis Powell then, the year after he wrote that memo, was put on the Supreme Court, and six years, seven years later, on the Supreme Court, 1968, uh, 60. Oh, which year was that? 1978, that's right. In the First National Bank versus Bilotti case, he actually wrote the decision legalizing political bribery by corporations. Lewis Powell himself. And, you know, the, the core of this entire thing was if Americans trust government, then government will regulate us billionaires and us big toxic poison producing corporations. And we can't have that because that means our taxes go up and the regulations mean our profits go down. So we've got to destroy Americans' faith in government. Cue Ronald Reagan. The nine most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Remember that? That was 1978. Or, excuse me, 76. And of course, in, uh, excuse me, 86. Boy, what a day for years. Um, in any case, that was 1986. He, and in 1981, January 20th of 1981, when Reagan was sworn in, you know, he came right out and said it. He said, government is not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem. And now we have been subject to 50 years of this, well, 40 years of it in a big way, of being told that government is the problem. You can't trust government. Government bureaucrats can't do anything right. Reagan's, you know, favorite, one of his favorite sayings, I've heard it literally a thousand times repeated since, since Reagan said it from other people, is, you know, there are no good people in government. If there were smart people working for the government, they would leave the government and take a higher paid job in private industry. There's no good people. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, just ridiculing the idea of public service, ridiculing the idea that some people go into government work because they actually want to serve the rest of us, that they want to be of use to society and of value to society. The scientists that work at the Environmental Protection Agency or the Interior Department, that they're only, you know, the, the conservatives would have you believe that they're only there because they're, they're dumb or they're incompetent, which is absolutely not the case. Some of the best scientists in the world work at the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control, for example. Government jobs. But 40 years of this mantra has led us now to the point where we've got the governors of Florida and Texas saying, government is so terrible, we're not going to let local governments protect your children from a deadly virus. This is where this is like the, the, the logical endpoint of this insane ideology. And now we've got an election coming up in 2022. 
And the billionaires and the transnational corporations are organizing their anti-democracy movements all over the world, and in particular here in the United States. And the question is whether Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress can make it through. Right? They just passed this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Oh, they didn't pass the bill. They passed the, the naked framework for the bill out of the Senate. So that goes to the House. They do the same thing. And then they start filling in the blanks, right? And Joe Manchin comes out and goes, oh, we can't have this. Too much money. Inflation. But that's okay. I, you know, Greg Sargent has a great piece in the Washington Post today, and I think he's absolutely right. Manchin has to give and cinema on the $3.5 trillion bill and vote for it if, in exchange for that, they want progressives in the House of Representatives, and in the Senate for that matter, to vote for their $1 trillion uh, non-reconciliation bill that's got all kinds of Republican goodies jammed into it, like private-public partnerships, huge subsidies of for-profit corporations in the broadband industry, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and not taking on the fossil fuel industry. All right, so if you, know, if you want your fossil fuel-friendly, big corporate-friendly bill, the $1 trillion bill passed Joe Manchin, you're going to have to suck it up with the $3.5 trillion bill. And Bernie, if you want the $3.5 trillion bill, you're going to have to suck it up and go along with the $1 trillion bill that Joe Manchin did. It's a reasonable kind of middle ground. The Republicans are trying to blow the whole thing up because they don't believe in government. Why? Because they are wholly owned by these billionaires and these polluting corporations that see government as something that reduces their profits. And they frankly don't give a damn about protecting Americans or the world. Ernesto in Montgomery, Illinois. Hey, uh, Ernesto, what's up? How you doing, Tom? Um, um, I'm, I'm having trouble with years, but other than that, I, you know, I'm mixing up my years today. <laughs> but anyhow, I'm good. I only got about four hours sleep last night. It probably has something to do with uh, it. What's on your mind? You're doing better than I am, then. So I want to talk about Biden's 50%. He wants to have 50% electric cars sold by 2030. Right. I mean... This just goes to show what you just said earlier about, you know, not offending or going against fossil fuel. It's just another gift back to them, you know? This is, we didn't go halfway when we, when World War II came along. You know, everything, all our industries were turned to produce for the war effort. This right. climate change thing is for real. Right. We are literally on fire. Yeah. This no, I. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm out here in the Pacific Northwest. I, I can tell you all about the nation being on fire. And I agree with you, Ernesto. My guess is that the bet that Biden is making, and I think it's probably a good bet, is that by saying we're going to push for 50 percent by 2030 and we're going to put into place new tailpipe emission standards and subsidies that will encourage people to buy electric cars, and we're going to build an electric car infrastructure to accommodate that, that what will happen is within two or three years, you're going to see people buying electric cars, telling their friends and neighbors about it, bragging about them. I don't know if you've driven an electric car, Ernesto, but they are amazing. I mean, they've got more pickup than the best muscle car out there and they're clean and their garage doesn't smell like gasoline all the time and it's just it's just amazing i think that you know after a couple of years you know people that you never thought of as you know being motivated by green are buying electric cars just because they're so cool i think it's going to work out you know i get what you're saying but i'm not particularly freaked out about it well you know after we get there let's say we get there to 2030 there's still going to be gasoline they're going to last another 10 to 15 years yeah i mean it's which means everything gets phased out by 2040 2045 which is you know the whole goal is to phase out fossil fuels by 2050 yeah i just i don't know i mean we really need to do it by 2040 by or even 2030 i mean it needs to be much sooner and i agree with your sentiment it'd be too late this should be all hands on deck 
We've got what we've got. Certainly, if I could sit down with Joe Biden, I'd say, you know, let's let's do it a little faster than that. In fact, let's do it a lot faster than that. But but uh, well, I, I mean, if we've we lost could go a three and a half here. trillion, three and a half trillion should be yeah. plenty to get it going. I think it will be. I think it will be if they can get it passed. I mean, there's just a lot hanging on this. Ernesto, thank you for the call. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I got kind of discovered this and went down this rabbit hole here with a piece by Jordan Green over at Raw Story. Good way to die, an AR-15 worshiping Mooney's sect mobilized for January 6th and is recruiting the far right to its apocalyptic vision. It goes back to a guy who's just a real expert on all this stuff, licensed medical health professional, a cult expert. He's the author of a couple of books, Combating Mind Control and most recently, The Cult of Trump and is the founding director of the Mind Resource Center. Freedomofmind.com is the website. And just to nail it, his Twitter handle is at cult expert, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Dr. Hassan, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Tell me about this cult of AR-15 worshiping Moonies. So briefly, Tom, and thanks for having me on again. I was in the moon cult from 74 to 76, and I was trained to die on command or kill on command. Moon said that democracy was satanic, that we would have to infiltrate the government. We would need to uh, destroy the separation of church and state. And essentially, this cult called the Rod of Iron Ministries is run by one of Moon's sons, Sean Moon. And he wears a crown of golden bullets and claims that a verse from Revelation of the New Testament says you need AR-15s to uh, do God's will. And he's uh, uh, bought a compound to do training for civil war. And there was an incredible thread on Twitter, Tom, by Capital Hunters following up from the Raw story where they went through all their footage of January 6th and documented this group, armed like the Oath Keepers. Uh, So it's a fascinating bit of research that they've done. So shout out to them. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, they call themselves Moonies. I, you know, I know when Reverend Moon died, there was sort of a power struggle over who got to claim, you know, his followers and his name among his children. Yeah, to be clear, when I was in the cult, that's when the term Moonies was used by the media, and Moon loved it. In fact, I wore a T-shirt, I am a Mooney, I heart a Mooney, and I love it. But after he was convicted of, of, of a felony and sent to jail, they did a PR spin and said, calling Moonies is like calling black people the N-word, so don't call us Moonies. But I continue to call them Moonies because that's what Moon loved, and he was the Messiah. Uh, So anyway, the mother of Sean and uh, Justin have split. They were fighting over the billions of dollars and separated. And interestingly, she, right after Biden was elected, had a global virtual peace meeting, uh, had Pence speak, Pompeo, Gingrich, and a bunch of other people. 
So they're they're oh. both trying to influence the planets, but Sean Moon wants to be king. He, he feels like he's the one taking over Sun Young Moon's role, whereas she says, nope, he's in the Sun Young Moon's in the spirit world and he's working with me. So it's really oh, interesting. Yeah, it is. But it sounds like she got, if she got the acting, you know, the, the, the Secretary of State of the United States, Mike Pompeo, and, you know, the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, to come speak at her gig. She's got some considerable pull. Are they still, I know the Moonies were having a huge influence on the Republican Party back in the 90s. And a lot of it was, was, it was underground because they, but they were funding Republican politicians and events and things like that. Exactly. In fact, Tom, this weekend, I learned for the first time in 45 years, I've been out of the cult for 45 years, doing my work as a mental health professional, helping people get out of cults. I learned that the Council for National Policy, and I'll shout out to Ann Nelson's book, Shadow Network, this is the group that uh, put James Whalen, the founding editor of Moon's newspaper, The Washington Times, in place. Hmm. So the connection between this shadow network of right-wing operatives and the Moonies has now been completely exposed directly. So Aside we, from the fact that we knew Gary German had been a Mooney and was involved as a, at the founding. Right. So we have now a religious sect, the, the Rod of Iron Ministries, run by Sean Moon, the son of uh, Sun, Sun Myung Moon, or however you say, the Reverend Moon. That was pretty good, Sun Myung Moon. Thank Correct. you. Uh, so we've got his son running this Rod of Iron Ministries cult, and they believe that democracy is satanic and must be replaced by theocracy, by, by making Sean king of America. Do I have that right so far? Correct. In fact, there's a constitution on his website that talks about the constitution they want to put in place of our constitution, the real whoa, constitution. Whoa. So, uh, so to what extent were, and you mentioned, you know, this, this threat of, you know, finding Moonies on January 6th. Well, you know, you could find people who ate at Dairy Queen the day before on January. I mean, pick any random thing you want to find, and probably it was represented by somebody on January 6th. But was it just that a few of these Moonies showed up, or were they integrated into or collaborating or co-conspiring with, you know, some of the other militia groups or even some of the Republican politicians? I mean, how, how, how big was this presence on January 6th of this, of this anti-democracy cult? So the, the truth is, is that on January 6th, and I knew there was going to be a violent attempt from all of the social media that we were tracking, um, I got a, uh, an image of a tweet from Sean Moon from my colleague in Japan, who's a Mooney watcher. And that was the, and I shared that uh, on social media, but it was really the raw story uh, piece by Jordan Green that brought the Capitol Hunters to really dig in and say, no, no, no. They were there the day before planning. They had hmm. the military gear. Uh, Steve Bannon spoke for them uh, several times. And the other news story was this compound near Waco where David Koresh went up in flames uh, that they purchased to train people how to use weapons and use Whoa. knives to kill people for civil war. And that this is a real thing. This is not. This is not is it, hyperbole is, or. Yeah, and let's and let's keep in mind. All. At the time that Osama bin Laden attacked America, he had fewer than five thousand followers in Afghanistan. He had run twenty thousand people through his ter so-called terrorist training camp, but the majority of them, you know, were not there for the ideology, and they were not committed to bin Laden. They they just you know were there for the training for whatever it may be. It is never mass movements that change policy or change countries, eventually it gets to that point. But it's always a small band of committed people, as Margaret Mead said. Indeed, that's the only way it's ever happened. Does Sean Moon and his uh, Rod of Iron Ministries, this anti-democracy cult, do they have like 50 followers, 500 followers, 5,000 followers, 500,000? I, I think it's pretty darn small. I'd say it's 3,000 maybe. What's well, on the order of what Bin Laden They're very had. much recruiting vets. They're recruiting NRA folks to the gun theme. 
I don't know how many will he believe he's a religious figure, the Messiah on earth. Mm -hmm. Does he have platforms? Is he like renting radio stations like some of the other right wing cult leaders, you know, like Jerry Falwell used to do and, you know, Kenneth Copeland is doing now, you know, preaching end of the world crazy stuff and, and don't get masked and don't get vaccines and things like that. So, you know, does he have radio and television or is he using Facebook? I mean, what platforms is he using to get his message out? I'm going to be honest with you. This has not been the focus of my attention. The cult of Trump has been, as well as helping clients with QAnon and other types of matters. But Mm -hmm. it's now back at the fore, and I'm trying to connect my colleagues and ex-members. I did a blog and an interview with a former 36-year member, Ed Kaufman, who left the group about seven years ago and has been doing some deep research. So the answer is, have me back on again, and I'll have a more in-depth answer. Okay, let me, let me flip that around has. for you, Dr. Hassan. When you have that information, reach out to Sean, and we will, we will definitely have you back on again. This is serious stuff, and we need to be paying attention to it. AR-15 worshiping Moonies mobilized for January 6th. A good way to die was the title of the article over on Raw Story. You can easily find it, you know, with a with a good search engine, as well as Dr. Hassan's website, freedomofmind.com, or his Twitter handle, Cult Expert. You can follow them all. Stephen, thank you again for dropping by today. It's great talking yeah, to thank you. Thank you, Tom, so much. Yep. Keep up the good work. Keep up the great work, the essential work. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of a new book, Reign of Terror, the subtitle, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Spencer Ackerman, foreverwars.substack.com is his website. You can tweet him at at Ackerman, A-T-T-A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. Spencer, welcome to the program. Tell us about how 9-11 set the stage for Donald Trump. Certainly. It does so in a couple ways. First, there's a deliberate imprecision after the attacks to not define the enemy. The enemy is not defined narrowly as the people who caused the attacks, but extremely broadly. And in fact, if you look at, for instance, the authorization to use military force, which kicks off the Afghanistan war, it's not defined really at all outside of allowing the president to do that definitional work. And accordingly, once all of this machinery coalesces, it creates opportunities to push American society more authoritarian direction through the expansion of mass surveillance, through indefinite detention, through torture, through putting immigration in a counterterrorism context. And as time goes on, the nativist current that exists kind of in symbiosis of those two things understands not that al-Qaeda or, you know, Osama bin Laden is responsible for the 9-11 attacks, but that they are symptoms of something that they see pathological within Islam itself, both overseas and here amongst their Muslim American neighbors. And as the war grows more and more disastrous, as something that's supposed to showcase American power instead showcases American weakness, then this offended sense of American exceptionalism amongst people who believed on the right what their leaders had told them experiences now this kind of cognitive dissonance, that these people who the U.S. is fighting, who are understood to be practically subhuman, somehow have beaten the United States of America, that has gone this badly. And at that point, then you also have lying in wait an opportunity for someone to come along and say the problem is that these elites don't understand the war that they're in against radical Islam, and they only have discredited themselves and brought you this humiliation. Only I can fix it, and the way I will fix it is with doubling down, accelerating 
all of the civilizational elements of the war against which violence is licensed, and then using it more expansively against people who we see as our domestic enemies, not only Muslims, but black people like Black Lives Matter, or anti-fascists who will now be dealt with by joint terrorism task forces. And we saw this really visibly on the streets of cities like New York and Washington and Portland last summer. Yeah. Wow. That's a a startling synopsis. We're talking with Spencer Ackerman about his new book, Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump. Without getting as granular as you just did from a kind of a 30,000 foot view, it almost seems to me like what 9-11 did, not 9-11 itself, but the way that George W. Bush and, and Dick Cheney chose to respond to it, you know, keeping in mind that Bush had told his biographer in 1999, Mickey Herskowitz, that if he became president, he was going to attack Iraq, that his father made a terrible mistake, you know, pulling out of Iraq after less than a week, that the uh, war really should have gone on long enough to get him reelected, and that he wouldn't make the mistake that his dad did. You know, he would get more political capital. But looking back, my dad, out of high school, joined the army to go fight in World War II. By the time he got there after boot camp, it was over and he ended up being part of the Japanese occupation. But he spent most of his life using basically racial slurs to describe Japanese and German people. You know, Japs and Krauts, words that they don't have quite the sting now. And my generation, you know, that went off to Vietnam, I, I didn't, but I knew people who did, used words that are that I, I won't use on the air to describe. Yeah, we don't need to say, we don't need to say them, we, but right. I think the point is clear. Yeah, and so World War II, we had to create an other, and you had to sli somewhat dehumanize them. Then in, with the Vietnam War, we did the exact same thing. And then it seems to me that George W. Bush did this with, with Muslims, and then Donald Trump came along and said, okay, let's continue this tradition and do it with, with people coming from south of the border. It's almost like every generation has to have their own racial bad guys. What do you think? Well, I think this is American history. This is the legacy. This is the sort of the resting natural state of the United States of America that exists because of settler colonialism that sees itself as having the right first to dominate an entire continent to include using the tools of genocide to do so and then from there the entire world and amongst the most defining actions that it takes throughout that history is to treat human beings as chattel and to set up a circumstance where in perpetuity the descendants of those people are to be a permanent second-class citizenship. And it only makes sense that America would conduct its wars like that. What we have to understand as well, you know, you mentioned, you know, you say each generation, you know, does this. Well, what does it mean when those wars don't end? Right. What does it mean when they become part of the permanent architecture of what the American government does? I think the answer, you know, is on display from the way you, you set up the question. Yeah. That's going to be what happens to our Asian American and Pacific Islander neighbors as the bipartisan Cold War against China coalesce. Whether any elite official who, for detached reasons of policy, believes that, you know, simultaneously the United States ought to pose, you know, so-called great power competition to China and also abhors racist violence against people of Chinese origin in the United States, the effect is nevertheless clear. The effect is nevertheless obvious. The effect is nevertheless demonstrated historically. Will we choose to do this again or will we break with it? You know, it's kind of the cultural norm is increasingly in America is to say you can't trash talk other Americans who are of Chinese, Japanese, Afghan ancestry. I mean, fill in the blank, Afghan ancestry. You can't trash Americans based on their racial or ethnic heritage. But it's okay to trash countries. And we're seeing this explosion of anti-China sentiment, particularly in the GOP right now, you know, and Trump with the China virus and all this kind of stuff. How do we break this cycle? 
Do you have any thoughts on that or any insights into that? I'm a journalist, so this isn't my way. And so everyone, you know, take that accordingly. But you can't have states of war. You can't have states organized around imperial competition, which is what this so-called great power competition with China really is. It's a war over resources. It's a war over, you know, winning proxies and determining whose geopolitical, which is to say geoeconomic, influence will dominate without there being once it is, you know, a distinctly ethnically or religiously or, you know, fill in the blank, definably other civilization without that civilizational element, which is both violent and will be expressed through violence. It's just unrealistic and kind of risable to think that you can have this without the racism that we have seen so many times follows it. It is always a thought experiment. Yeah, well, you point out how differently. Amongst the least. Yeah, it's always a thought experiment that, well, of course, these are intellectually separable things. Sure, they are. But the effect is nevertheless the same. And if you are going as, you know, a leader um, to be advocating this, then you have to reckon with the fact that you are opening the door to very predictably racist violence. Right. And you point out in the book how different we responded to Tim McVeigh killing over 300 people in, in, you know, with the terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City following the script of the book, The Turner Diaries, uh, compared to how, how we responded to 9-11, which was done by people of a different race and a different religion from another country. That's correct. I think that through looking at the response to the Oklahoma City bombing, we really see the war on terror in contradistinction and accordingly in full. We see who the war on terror targets and we see who it exempts, even when the behavior is fundamentally similar, even when the conspiracism is fundamentally similar, even when the ambitions are fundamentally similar. How should George W. Bush have responded to 9-11 so as not to open this door? He should have accepted the peace deal with the Taliban that the Taliban offered in December 2001. He should have targeted for arrest and prosecution only the members of al-Qaeda involved in the plot, and that should have been it. Then he should have taken, he obviously wouldn't have done this, but then he should have taken the country into a long, hard look at what the wages of American imperialism are, what the wages of being a global policeman are, and then start to relinquish those claims. It never would have happened. This was a a government run by oil men. But nevertheless, that was right then. Yeah, absolutely spot on. It's a brilliant book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump by Spencer Ackerman, foreverwars.substack.com and at ATT Ackerman on Twitter. Spencer, thank you so much for dropping by. Thanks very much, Tom. Yeah, good talking with you. This is just, in a way, really kind of horrible stuff, but Spencer does a great job of illuminating and clarifying it all for us. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the Tom Harbin program, and on the line with us is Dr. Justin Frank, the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch and his previous Obama and Bush on the Couch books. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle, which is uh, one of the places where he's most active and really worth checking out. He's really worth following on Twitter. Dr. Frank, welcome back to the program. I, we're asking the question, how do we stop Trump death cultists from drinking the Kool-Aid, essentially? This is all the same thing, right? Can you, can you translate that into English? Yes, I think you just did translate it in part. The idea of a death cult is really important, but I want to just emphasize the word cult because it's a very strict set of beliefs and feelings where people are attached to an authoritarian figure. They believe everything that person says. They follow him or her, usually him. And they are very suspicious of anybody who disagrees with them. And yet they need to have a kind of other, somebody who they can disagree with and think is wrong and bad. And this is a way of getting rid of what's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance means having two conflicting thoughts or feelings, both of which may be true, but they don't fit together. So you have a very hard time making a decision or knowing what to do. And cognitive dissonance for most people, all of us, can cause some anxiety. I don't know who to believe. I don't know what to believe. I don't know how to act. I mean, this is a very familiar kind of situation, but the power of the Kool-Aid and Trump is that he gets away with abolishing cognitive dissonance. We have certainty. There's no anxiety. And I think that's the core quality and attraction of a cult group. And one of the things you see this in, for instance, is in certain evangelical churches. I have a friend who was in an evangelical church years ago when she was a little girl or a young girl, young woman, and she told me that the pastor ran off with a 14-year-old girl in their church. Not good. And was obviously not allowed to come back, and it was not good. But you would think that they would rethink things, but it turns out that when the next pastor came to be there, he had the same power over them as the previous pastor. And so it wasn't about belief systems as a system. It wasn't about religion or Jesus or anything like that. It was actually about the person who was the leader. So it's about Trump now, but the life after Trump what are we going to do? Well, I think that somebody can step into Trump's shoes very quickly because there are people who are more hungry for certainty, who are afraid of doubt, who really can be anti-vaxxers, even though they see friends and family dying who are anti-vaxxers. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that there is a certain subset of our population that experiences so much anxiety by not knowing what's true and what's not true, what's real and what's not real, that they are looking for somebody to tell them what's true and not true. And whether that person is telling them the truth or not doesn't matter. What matters is that they bond to that person. These are your cult followers. And in the case of this church, that pastor had apparently you know, been a cult leader long enough that the people who are not inclined to be cult followers left the church and the church was left with nothing but people who are cult follower types. So when another cult leader exactly. replaces the original pastor, the people just transfer that right to him. And it sounds like what you're saying is that's also true of the Trump followers and of the anti-vaxxers 
and you know people who in other circumstances would be you know believing that the ufos are going to come and save us all or whatever that they're yeah. always going to be looking for a cult leader to, to teach them what does this tell us about how we can reach these people i mean is it possible that I, you know, my dad, who hated Franklin Roosevelt because my dad was a, a staunch Republican, used to refer to, the, to the, the people who were really into Roosevelt as cult followers. I mean, is it possible to give these folks certainty in something that actually is true? You know, hey, you know, we're actually doing something here good. You should be following Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump. Is it possible to, to even take cult followers and get them to follow the, the cult of the normal? Well, it is possible. And there are people who certainly followed Roosevelt and he won by landslides every time he ran. And I can see where your father didn't like that, especially if he was a Republican. But I think that one of the things that's different to me about Roosevelt, I, mean, I remember I had a very big argument. This is really important, Tom. I remember after Clinton was inaugurated in 93, I was with a group of friends, and I was talking about how angry I was at Clinton about something or other. I can't remember. And this woman, who was a very dear friend of mine forever, said, don't say anything bad about Clinton. It's not fair. And I said, I want to have a leader that I can get angry at, that I can be disappointed in, that I can question. I, that's a person who allows you to think and who will think also. That's how I felt about Clinton, where I didn't feel that way about Reagan or H.W. Bush, because they didn't allow for other people to think. Hmm. So I think that that, that, so that, that's very different. Roosevelt was not like that either. Roosevelt tolerated people criticizing him and talked about it. You're right. And Trump does not. Yeah, and it's a fascinating thing. So what does that tell us about if we have, about how to deal with a friend or a next door neighbor or a relative or somebody in the workplace? How do we approach these people who have fallen into this cult because of this psychological vulnerability. Okay, I think one of the issues that is really important is your use of the term fallen into the cult. I actually think they embrace the cult. Mm -hmm. I don't think they fall into it. I think they're looking for something that will relieve their anxiety and they're looking for answers. So they don't actually, they may look like they fall into a cult, but I think that they embrace it. And I think it's an active process. And it's a process, even though they're passively following the leader, the search for a cult is very active and very affirming. And when they connect to a leader, they really connect deeply. So the question is, how do you help a person disconnect? Well, first of all, I don't know, I have to say because it's really hard to do unless they have an inner conflict. If they see that it's also killing my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, then I, they may think about it. But you need to get cognitive dissonance in people in a cult. They have to learn to find some way of doubting their dutiful following. And that's a very hard thing to do because people use certainty as a defense against anxiety about having to think. Right. And all of us are attracted to the pleasure of not having to think. Like we could just categorize, all Trump is bad, Trump is, you know, we just put people in categories and we yeah. do that. Oh, I think we're all vulnerable to that. From having to think. It's also a mechanism to deal with the overwhelming number of things to think about, you know? Okay, that category yeah, of stuff, I'm just gonna accept that. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I had a friend who used to say he has every five years he develops a new concern that he will not think about. So like in the 50s, he said, I'm not thinking about China for five years or I'm not thinking about <laughs> the environment for five years. And he didn't read about any of those things in the paper. And he focused on whatever he was focusing on. That was, that was pretty funny. But you can't do that now with climate change, with the democracy falling apart, possibly, with lots of things happening, the people now being allowed to vote. My yeah. goodness. 
And a pandemic on top of it all, this, and which just exacerbates oh, yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. So any suggestions on how we move out of this world of the, right. the Trump call? First suggestion, well, there's a few. First suggestion is listening is the new talking. Listen to the person who doesn't agree with you and try to understand where they're coming from because you'll learn a lot about them and about you and what it is that they're afraid of. Secondly, find a way to pose questions rather than be an expert to by saying that they're wrong or they don't know it. It's always important to be, shall we say, dumber than the other person. Hmm. And that's something that Tucker Carlson is great at when he says, well, how does this work? And he makes mm -hmm. you doubt something. He doesn't just attack it. And that's a very important thing. You want to ally yourself with their own fears and finding a way to psychologically sit next to the person. Remarkable stuff. It won't always work, but it's the best way to do it. Yeah. Dr. Justin Frank, author of Trump on the Couch. You can follow him on Twitter at JustinFrankMD and also the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. Dr. Frank, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I always find our conversations enlightening and uh, just very, very, very useful. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolutionary Love by Michael Lerner a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. This is from the introduction. We Earthlings need to build a fundamental change of consciousness into ourselves and in every part of our national and global society in order to achieve the economic and political changes necessary to prevent the destruction of the life support system of Earth, in order to end global and domestic poverty and wealth inequality, to defeat racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of xenophobia, to protect human rights, to achieve social, economic, and environmental justice, and to achieve lasting global peace. This new consciousness is possible and can emerge through embracing revolutionary love, the struggle for a caring society, and a new bottom line in all our economic, political, legal, educational, and cultural institutions. This manifesto is written to show you how this can happen and how you can help make it possible. Liberal and progressive movements need to move beyond a focus on economic entitlements and political rights to embrace a new discourse of love, kindness, generosity, and awe. These are not some new agey, smile and be nice formula or let's get into self-transformation before we change society kind of thinking. I'm calling for both our American and global societies to embrace a new bottom line so that every economic, political, societal, and cultural institution is considered efficient, rational, and or productive, not according to the old bottom line of how much these institutions maximize money, power, or ego, but rather how much they maximize love and generosity, kindness and forgiveness, ethical and environmentally sustainable behavior, social and economic justice. This new bottom line seeks to enhance our capacity to transcend a narrow utilitarian or instrumental way of viewing human beings and nature so that we respond to other people as embodiments of the sacred instead of thinking of them primarily in terms of how much they can serve our interests. And also so that we can respond to nature not solely as a resource for human needs but rather through awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this universe. I call this new consciousness revolutionary love and its goal is to create the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. The vehicle to create this new consciousness, we will call the Love and Justice Movement, and eventually the Love and Justice Party. The revolutionary possibility of love is the kind of love that breaks through those distortions of consciousness that make it difficult to implement a national environmental policy or to end the many forms of oppression that permeate our world. To really embrace revolutionary love requires us to develop a strategy way beyond anything currently being given serious attention in the media, the political parties, and even many of the social change movements. And it requires us to move beyond what seems realistic in terms of the contemporary frame of discourse. Yet there is no alternative if we're to solve the environmental crisis and prevent our society in the coming decades from moving further and further into reactionary nationalism and repression 
of our own humanity. We need a global mobilization of billions of people to solve the problem. And this manifesto outlines the first steps to making possible such a mobilization. To understand the urgency, let's consider our current environmental crisis. In 1992, thousands of scientists issued a collective statement warning of the impending dangers to the life support system of planet Earth. 25 years later, in December 2017, 15,364 scientists from 184 countries signed a new statement that reads, in part, since 1992, with the exception of stabilizing the stratospheric ozone layer, humanity has failed to make sufficient progress in generally solving these unforeseen environmental changes. And alarmingly, most of them are getting far worse. Especially troubling is the current trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change due to rising greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels and agricultural production, particularly from farming ruminants for meat consumption. Moreover, we have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. Humanity is now being given a second notice. We are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geologically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a planetary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. By failing to adequately limit population growth, reassess the role of an economy rooted in growth, reduce greenhouse gases, incentivize renewable energy, protect habitat, restore ecosystems, curb pollution, halt defaunation, and constrain invasive alien species, humanity is not taking the urgent steps needed to safeguard our imperiled biosphere. End of quote from the scientists. The book is Revolutionary Love by Rabbi Michael Lerner. Paul in Wichita, Kansas. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. Before the 2020 election, I had contacted my election commissioner, and I asked her, how can I exit the polls with proof of how I voted? Mm-hmm. And, she, and she was brilliant. She says, here's what you do. You request a mail-in ballot. So I did. You fill it out. You take it to a notary, have photocopies made and certified by a notary. I did that free of charge at my local P-Dunk suburb, City Hall. Mm-hmm. And she didn't even charge me. That's nice. Uh, she looked at me funny, mm-hmm. you know, and she was gone a long time. I think she called the election office and they said, sure, why not? You know, it's free country. Oh, yeah. So I did that and came back home, you know, filled out, came back home with the copy uh, and put it back in the mailbox and all done. Yeah. And I supposedly have my ballot. Yeah, and in most states, you can check with the state to see if your vote was recorded. They won't tell you who you voted for, because that's private information, but they'll tell you that your vote was recorded. Excellent. So, yeah. That's the one way I did not follow through to see if my vote was uh, contested. Yeah, and uh, that's that's probably the, the, the most important thing to check on. But you're doing it right, Paul. I mean, get, just I don't think it's necessary to necess, you know to go to a notary, but getting a, a mail-in ballot means that you are voting on paper, which is the most reliable and the most easily audited, and and you know uh, couldn't get better. Paul, thanks for that, and thanks for sharing that with our audience. I appreciate it. Bob in Helena, Montana. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Do you know what this Mike Lindell's doing with this cyber? Symposium? Yeah, he's. He, I think he's really put his foot in it here, uh, Bob, because he promised yeah. that he was going to reveal to the world how the voting machine companies and everybody else, you know, conspired to screw Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And he brought the receipts. He said he had the, you know, he had the proof. And uh, everybody's looking at it, going, "What's this?" You know, it was a bunch of gibberish in, in hexadecimal code. Made no well, sense to anybody. What? What ticks me up, my local newspaper here, we get circulation of probably 800, maybe or 1,000, once a week paper. Mm-hmm. He took out a quarter page ad in this paper, and I don't know if I should cancel my 
subscription is this what would you do tom i would write a letter to the editor not threatening the newspaper but pointing out what a sleazoid mike lindell is and how his claims have been debunked we need to be supporting our local papers i know that's that's my thoughts too all right yeah. tom i'll let you go thanks yeah. have a good day thanks bob nice to hear from you bill in clifton new jersey hey bill what's on your mind yeah hey tom i couldn't help but to think about in the future way in the future when you know the last republican denounces reagan and trump but that they're going to have no more combustion engines will be banned and motorcycles will be all electric and what are they going to do there at sturgis when it makes no noise oh they'll probably hook loudspeakers up where their tailpipes used to be and play well, <laughs> you know, well they'll be They'll be violating local ordinances for decibel. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> right. I was thinking about this thing where the governor could put in a Republican uh, center in California mm-hmm. that why don't we just do what Wisconsin did and North Carolina did and deprive the governor of his powers because we have a, a Democratic uh, legislature. That's probably a good idea, given how Republicans are gaming the system continually mm-hmm. in California in order right. to inappropriately, mm-hmm. shall we say, uh, grab right. over the Republican seat, or uh, the uh, governor's right. seat. Right, and I'm guessing that they could also do something about the rule itself, maybe make whatever their equivalent of the uh, House Speaker, the one who chooses the senator for a temporary purpose or, or until they repeal that. Yeah, it's done you know, in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different states. Uh, it's probably uh-huh. worthwhile for California to reconsider that, but I I doubt it's going to happen, you know, in this legislative session. Bill, thank you for the call. And thank you for being with us today for the program. Thanks to all the folks who've called in. Thanks to the stations that carry our show and our sponsors and everybody else. We really appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow. Get out there, get active, tag your it. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 